Again, it's great to have all of you here. We are in the midst of a series called Hinges. If you've been around for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that this is a six-week overview of the tenets of basic theology and doctrine. And what we've decided to do in calling it hinges is going with the idea of a door and the motif that says these hinges are what everything hangs on. So these classic doctrines that we're going to be talking about each week, really for each of us, everything in life, what we believe about life, what we believe about God is going to hang on these particular beliefs. So each week we've been talking about what door this theology opens for us and what door it closes for us. And this morning I get the privilege of talking about the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. Something that I'm very familiar with. Okay. Anybody ever have one of those people that come to their house, maybe it's a dinner party or you're going out to eat with them or just you're in a group of people and somebody who you would signify by the phrase a Debbie Downer. You know who I'm talking about? Somebody's like, hey, uh, Saturday, why don't we go to an amusement park? Oh my goodness. Did you know last year there's 84 people that had life-threatening injuries as a result of roller coasters? And it's like the whole mood of the group just goes, you know, or like, hey, uh, let's, let's, it's, a, it's a nice day. Let's, can I get you a Coke? Do you know that if you take one of your teeth and drop it in a can of Coca-Cola, it's going to completely dissolve overnight <laughs> and turn into pure evil? You know what I mean? Like a Debbie Downer type of people. We know who those people are and we can recognize that that is a reality. Well, this morning, I don't mean to come across as a Debbie Downer. But the reality is we're going to be talking about something pretty serious and pretty negative and pretty impacting this morning as we talk about the idea of sin. Now, there are some churches that all they do is they talk about sin and judgment and condemnation and that sort of thing, right? But then there's there's a whole lot of other churches that they never want to talk about sin. They want everything to be sunshine and roses. And, you know, when people come to church, they just want to be inspired and they just want to walk out feeling at peace and feeling happy because God just wants us to be happy. Right. Well, this morning we're talking about some very difficult and awful things. And as I was in my study this week, I was reminded of something that happened a few years back right before Thanksgiving when we were about ready to have a whole lot of company come in from other states, we ended up having a little bit of a problem in our house. Dad, the toilet's clogged. Love hearing that little call to rescue, right? Like, all right. So I'm up there doing the traditional, you know, and it's not working. And the sink all of a sudden won't go down. Somebody's taking a shower and it's not, water's not going down. So there's a deep problem. And it's not just this porcelain piece that's a problem. It's something way underneath in the girders of the house problem. So being the handyman that I am, <laughs> I, uh, I, I tried to solve the problem, got some friends to help me. We figured out it's nothing at the house or here. It is somewhere between the house and the street, the sewer pipe. Something's going on in there. Something's going down and something's not going down. <laughs> so, you know, we put a, put a big hose down there, turned it on. And all of a sudden we start to see some water bubbling up like about halfway down the yard. So we know that there's some sort of crack, some break in the pipe. And so I actually called a few different places because I'm thinking like backhoe and like big crazy digging down. 
thousands of dollars, all right, potentially to come in and fix this. I'm like, you know what? I got a shovel. I got a pair of gloves. I'm taking care of this. So I just start digging right where this water was bubbling up and I get down, you know, several feet and it starts to get wetter and wetter and muddier and how do you say muddier? And so I'm getting down there in this grit and grime and mire and I am literally knee deep in the grit of humanity. And I'm seeing this pipe and I'm seeing the problem because a root had come from a tree and like went, you know, very far and somehow thought that there was goodness inside of that pipe. So like got into the pipe and broke the pipe and was clogging everything up and there was a, a, a backlog of stuff and that was the problem. So I got out my little saw and I saw there and I saw there and I went down to the Home Depot after I cleaned up, of course, and I picked up, you know, the stuff and I solved the problem for about $5 and I was very proud of myself. But the point is, I was in the middle of the most disgusting scene that I've ever been in my entire life. And so you may be like, well, that's kind of sick and thanks for that visual and that's not really, you know, dinnertime talk. That's not really church talk. Why do you bring up that terrible, awful, disgusting story? It's because spiritually I have felt like as I'm diving into this idea of sin and God's view of this sin that literally I have been wading waist deep into the negative, putrid stench of humanity and God's view of our sin. I know it's not pleasant and know it's not great and it's not sunshine and happy, but this morning my task is to present to you sin in the way that God sees it. And God uses a whole lot of very descriptive terms when he's talking about sin. He talks about dead man's bones. He talks about filthy rags in Philippians. Paul talks about all my righteousness in Philippians chapter three. It's like a giant big heap of dog doo-doo. Those are the terms that God allows to be used for our condition and our actions. And this morning, we are going to dive into what this really looks like. And it's not gonna be pretty. But if we didn't, the equivalent would be if you're sick, if you've got a disease and you go into the doctor and you get checked out and he comes back with his diagnosis and you're like, ah, you know what? I don't want to hear it. I'm good. And you just walk out pretending that everything's fine. Well, everything is not fine. We've got a disease and it needs to be dealt with. So if you have your copy of scripture, you can turn to Genesis chapter one. We're going to be beginning here in Genesis chapter one through three. And then we're going to turn to one other passage together. I'm going to be mentioning a bunch of others. But the first act that we see in this drama unfolding of humanity, act one, life was good. Life was good. And here in Genesis chapter one, we've got an epic, beautiful, metered, rhythmic poem of creation. We've got the Trinity present in all of their power and majesty and creativity working together to design this whole entire planet and what's amazing about this account is that it seems that God creates something and it gets better and it gets better and it gets better and there's definitely a rhythm and a crescendo to it you see God creates in the first three days certain elements and then he almost goes back again on day four that correlates with day one and improves upon what he already created. 
And day number one, he separated the light from the darkness. And in day number four, he created the sun and the moon. These massive, heavenly, beautiful bodies to complete what he started on day one. Day number two, he created the sky and the water. And then on day number five, he filled the sky with birds and he filled the water with fish. Amen to that. Day number three, he creates land and he allows for vegetation and growth. And then day number six, he fills up all of that land with animals and with man. He was creating and he goes back and he is recreating and building upon. And then you've got day number six, of course, where he creates man and in true form of the crescendo, continually getting better and better and better at the end of each day. He said he saw it all and it was good. At the end of day six, he saw it all and it was very good. And notice he created man and in his continual crescendo, thought he could do a little bit better and he created woman. And I say that in the most pandering way possible. But here's God in all of his ingenuity just crafting a beautiful painting for us of Eden and life was good. The Hebrews had a word for this and the word was shalom. Maybe if you've got some Jewish friends, you've heard that and it's kind of a greeting and it's also kind of a farewell. And essentially we minimize it and say, well, the word means, you know, peace, like peace be with you. Shalom, like goodbye, peace be with you, you know, peace, you know. Like we trivialize it, but the word's so much deeper than that. Because yes, it does mean peace, but the deeper root, beautiful meaning to the word shalom is where the world, everything in the world is as it should be. There's harmony. There's relationship. And when you think about the garden and when you think about Eden and where God put Adam and Eve in the midst of that, there was perfect shalom. It says in scripture that every day God used to come in the cool of the day and they would walk together and they would talk together. There was relationship with the king of the universe. There was no anxiety. There was no fear. There was no pain. There was no frustration. Life was good. And then we get to act number two. And act number two is where sin entered in and one author put it this way it was so interesting in Genesis chapter 3 as we find this account of the fall of man that there's absolutely no author commentary on it I don't know if anybody here is into the ESPN documentaries the 30 for 30 documentaries I recently saw one called the events of June 1994 it was one day in sports and the unique thing about this documentary was that there was absolutely no commentary at all. No narration, like a lot of documentaries, nothing. It was just cutting from screen to screen to screen to screen. Here's everything that happened on that horrific and memorable day in sports. No commentary. And here we have Genesis chapter 3. And, uh, and the author is almost painting the picture for you. Almost in horror, cringing as it goes through those those actions and those decisions with no commentary on it whatsoever. So here in Genesis chapter three, we've got the serpent that enters in. 
right there in the beginning. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. When we talk about evil, we have to talk about Satan. You'll notice that he was craftier than any beast that the Lord God had made. Satan was a created being. Satan was made along with all of the other angels and along with all of us. And similar to us, God made us with a free will and a decision-making capacity that would allow us to choose either evil or good. And what we see here right from the beginning is that Satan had chose evil and he exists to thwart the shalom that God had set up. A brief history of scripture, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. You don't have to turn there, but that's an account that many people believe is prophetic about the person of Satan. How he set himself up and said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above that of God. I will ascend to the heights. I will make myself like the most high. Ezekiel chapter 28 is another passage of scripture, again, that many commentators believe outlines the characteristics of Satan, that he was there in the garden, that he was beautiful, but yet the pride that filled up in his heart caused him to fall. We see a few other characteristics in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, Satan cannot outwit us. We are not unaware of his schemes. In Ephesians 6, it says we can stand against the schemes of the enemy. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, it says, be alert and be sober-minded for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeing whom he may devour. And we get the idea that this evil that permeated when sin came in, it was a, a thought-out, registered, scheming, planned attack. And I'm here to tell you this morning that when we think about original sin and what happened in the garden, the same thing is going on right now. And the enemy is alive and well and he is seeking to devour, to trip up, to frustrate, and to cause to be benign the people of God. So when the enemy came in, of course, in his crafty way, he basically only said two sentences. And that was all that was needed for Eve to be convinced. Did God really say, God just doesn't want you to partake of the, the fruit because he doesn't want you to know good and evil. Jesus called Satan the father of lies and this was the very first one. It's like, God's holding out on you. And so you look around at Eden, you look around at all this stuff and like all these plethora of thousands, if not millions of trees and fruit and everything. And yet there's that one. And Eve was convinced along with Adam, who was right there with her, that said, God is holding out on you. There's something good that he's not giving to you. And so thus you had the decision that led to destruction. The trade-off that Adam and Eve had was this. The exchange was this. They traded in a respect for authority that was replaced by rebellion. A sense of a good conscience was replaced by guilt and shame. This blessing was replaced by physical and spiritual and eternal punishment. God as a friend to be walked with was replaced by an enemy to be hiding from. 
and the freedom to live and enjoy was replaced by enslavement to sin. D.A. Carson put it this way, consumed by our own self-focus, we desire to dominate or manipulate others. And here in the garden is the beginning of fences, of rape, of greed, of malice, of nurtured bitterness, and the beginnings of war. Because of what Adam and Eve did, they were expelled from the garden. And Paul talks about how that one sin proceeded down to all mankind and we were all born into sin. So there's two ways that this affects us. The first one that we want to talk about here briefly is that sin affects us positionally. Positionally. As humanity. The book of Romans chapter 3 verse 23. The book of Romans chapter 6 verse 23. Both talk about this idea of sin. And the first one says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God's perfection was up here, relationship with God, Eden, shalom was all up here. And then when sin entered in, all of a sudden we have fallen and we have never gotten back up to that point. I don't really think there's too many people in here that would argue with that. Everybody's sinned, everybody's done something wrong. But in Romans 6, 23, it says, and the wages of sin is death. And the wages are something that we earn, something that we deserve. We think about wages in a positive sense, right? You got a job, you're ready for that wage to come. But here, what we deserve, what we've earned because of our decision, because of our sin, is death. Both physical death and spiritual death. So positionally as a people, we are cursed. The earth itself was cursed, it says in Genesis 3. So that means weeds and mosquitoes and floods and earthquakes and everything else that happens that breaks this great peace of God is all a result of the curse. It's all a result of sin. And we as human beings, from here on out, everyone that was born after Adam and Eve was born into sin. The book of Ephesians chapter one and Ephesians chapter two talk about how we are enemies of God. And we're under his wrath because of our sin. And that trickles down to all areas of life. Disease, death, cancer, blood disorders, pain, rejection, bullying, depression. All of them are a part of the curse. None of it was the way things were meant to be. But that is trickled down because of the position that we're in. Second area that we want to talk about is personal Sin. Personal sin. You can turn your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 2. We'll spend the rest of our time there. Verse 15. 1 John 2, 15. Here's what the apostle says. Here's the command. Hear the urgency in his voice. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And you can hear the urgency in the writer's tone as he's writing to the church. He said, don't 
love the world. Now love the people of the world. We're not talking about that, but we're talking about this sin that has crept in, this selfishness that has crept in. Don't be caught entangled in that. And I wanted to give us a little visual because there's a very clear rhythm in this passage as well of three things that can entangle us as it pertains to our personal sin. And I've got a uh, picture up there of a, uh, of a fishing lure. Now from somebody who enjoys fishing, we know what this is all about, right? The only way you're successful in fishing is to completely fool that fish into thinking that this is something real. So you toss it out there and you're slowly, you know, reeling it in and you're shaking it so it looks like some sort of poor injured little minnow over there. And the idea is to fool that into coming and grabbing it. And so then you've got it and you've caught it. Here it is. It's all about imitation. But I threw that up there because there's three different hooks on there. And on each hook, there's three different individual hooks. And if you've ever fished with one of these before, you know they're very effective. Why? Because even if a fish only grabs that tail end, pretty soon that whole thing's going to be in the mouth. And even if they just try and grab a piece of it, pretty soon those other ones are going to get in there. And I dare say this morning, as we think about our lives, as we think about the church, and as we think about these three things listed out as far as personal sin, that's a good illustration. The three that he lays out there, as I mentioned, are lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh is basically, it's a sin that is taking any good thing, any natural thing, like an appetite for food, a desire for sexuality, a desire to have a family, to love your kids, anything that is natural and God gave us and making that the ultimate thing or achieving that outside of the boundaries that God has given us. That's what lust is of the flesh is. Lust of the eyes has to do with possessions, seeing things, trinkets and cars and boats and clothes and houses and whatever, insert whatever else there that says, that's what I want. Things that my eyes see, I want to have. And the boastful pride of life is the idea that God is holding out on us, that we know better and that we're gonna be all right just on our own. Any one of these hooks constantly is going through the, the, the waters of American Christian society and it looks like it's the real thing and it looks like it's gonna satisfy and it looks like we're gonna have a nice legitimate meal only to be reeled in and held up as a trophy by the enemy. Well, in Genesis chapter three, going back to the idea of the garden, we see this same pattern repeated amongst Adam and Eve, right? Genesis chapter three, verse six, it says, they looked upon the apple or the piece of fruit and they saw that it was good for food, lust of the flesh. Something that's normal, but it's not fulfilled as part of God's plan. They saw that it was pleasing to the eye that it says, it was something that they wanted to hold and behold and appreciate and enjoy, a thing, a possession. And it says that it would make one wise like God, the boastful pride of life. Do you see how that pattern reappears? Almost as if they're bookends in scripture. And then you have Jesus. In Matthew chapter four, we get the account 
of him also being tempted by the devil. We see in the book of Hebrews that says he's been tempted in every way just as we were. So he saw that same lore passing on by with those same three things. It says that he was tempted to turn the stones into bread in Matthew chapter 4. Lust of the flesh. It says that the enemy told him all of these kingdoms that you see can be yours. Satan had the ability to do that. He had dominion over them. Lust of the eyes. And finally, he said, if, if you will just throw yourself off from this pinnacle, all the angels will come and rescue you. The boastful pride of life. Satan knew what Jesus was there for. He knew he wanted to influence and convince people of a certain way of living. What better way than to jump off, create this spectacle. There's tens of thousands of people down there in the courtyard area in Jerusalem. They would see all of this and they would believe that you're the Messiah. Why don't you go ahead and do that? Tempting Jesus with pride and to make a big spectacle. He said, no, not going to happen. He thwarted each one of those areas by quoting scripture and by believing in what was better and by taking the humble road. So what do we have to say about this in our lives personally? Unfortunately, I don't think that many of us take sin as seriously as God takes it. I don't know about you, but for me sometimes when I, at the end of the day, I'm like, all right, time for confession. God, here's where I failed today. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I think today was a pretty good day. You know what I'm talking about? It wasn't a good day. I had thoughts, I had actions, I had feelings, I had anger, I had lust, I had envy, I had all of these other things. But man, if we are not well acquainted with how evil our heart continually is and how like gravity we are drawn towards evil things, we're gonna end up being very far away from God. And in our culture, I fear that's what's happened. We don't take sin near as seriously as God takes it. And there's some sobering passages in scripture. Think about James chapter five, where it says, uh, you know what? Here's the reason why many of you are sick. It's not because there's a flu bug going around. It's because you're living your lives in sin. Here's the reason why many have fallen asleep, which is a kind way of saying, here's the reason why some people have died is because there's sin in their lives. And man, that's not a popular theology to spout. And of course, we're not saying it's always like that. We know that people get sick for a lot of reasons. People die for a lot of reasons. But it's in there that one of the reasons why maybe God's allowing you to go through something is because he is just letting you live your life and there are consequences to that. Think about sobering passages like Joshua chapter seven and that account of a man named Achan who specifically went against God's command. And when they were in a battle and when they overtook a city, they took a bunch of devoted sacred gold and silver and he took it and he stole it and he hid it under his tent. And because of that, the whole nation suffered. Dozens of people were killed in a battle unnecessarily because God's favor was no longer resting on Israel because one person had sinned. 
And we think about that and we're like, well, that doesn't sit right. That's not really fair. Well, you tell them. You know, the way God works is he wants his people to be holy and he will fight for that holiness because sin is an offense and sin is an affront. And one person's sin can affect all of us. So here essentially is the Debbie Downer moment of where we stand. It's not pleasant. It's not lovely. It's not happy, but it's true. And whereas God, in all of his beauty and all of his glory, decided he was going to create a place where we could be together, where we could relate, where we could spend time, and where we could be ushered into all of his beauty and all of his glory and all of his celebration, we had something to say about that. And for anybody, perhaps, that is listening online, we've had an artist here, one of our one of our ladies at the church who's just been crafting this, this beautiful canvas. And there's mountains and there's blue sky and there's wispy clouds and there's a beautiful lake and there's greenery and there's flowers and, and that's the way it was in the garden. And Adam and Eve, when the decision was theirs to, well, what do we do? Do we relish that? Do we enjoy that? Do we just live and walk in, in a harmony and a shalom with the God of the universe? Or do we do something different, essentially? They said, man, well, God, here's what I think of your creation. Here's what I think of everything that you've done for me. Here's what I want to do to this beautiful picture that you've painted. And thus, with their actions, and thus, with their decision, they put a huge, awful, dirty, Mark all over. And in the first service when this happened, you could hear the collective gasp from people. Why? Well, why would you do something like that? I mean, that is a beautiful picture. She spent time and detail creating and making this just into this beautiful canvas. Why would you just ruin it? But this is the reality of what happened in the garden. And on a corporate level, we see, on a corporate as in church, global, people, humanity, we see this giant mark, this giant stain that is all over us and it won't go away. And on a personal level in my life, this is what I see as well. Because when God was offering his peace and his shalom and everything else, so often I've just said, here's exactly what I think. And oh, you can, you can see a little bit of a glimpse of it. You can see a little bit of the beauty that once was. But there's something that you can't help but take your eye off of. Something that ruins the whole equation. And this is where humanity stands right now. So at the end of each service, we've tried to land it with a couple of thoughts for you about, okay, so what does this doctrine of sin do for me? What hinge does this open? And what door does this open? And what door does it close for me when I think about this? What door does it close for us? Well, number one, it closes the door that says, we're okay just the way we are. That seems to be a pretty common prevailing theme amongst humanity. You know what? I'm all right. I mean, yeah, okay, I sin, but hey, everybody sins. Well, that door is closed when we think about the doctrine of 
sin. We're not okay just as we are. Number one, number two, what other door does it close for us? God will understand and he'll just look beyond it. What doors does it open for us when we really take a good hard look at this doctrine? Number one, it opens a door that says we can look at the world in a brand new way. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, if this is the way the world is right now, I can look at the world as like, well, no wonder there's so much evil. No wonder there's so much pain. No wonder there's so much suffering. It's a cursed, sinful world. And my hope cannot be hanging on this world. I mean, we'll see glimpses of goodness. We've got family and we've got friendships and we've got worship and we can enjoy the beauty of nature and we can catch glimpses of it. But there is a big, huge problem that needs to be dealt with. And number two, the doctrine of sin opens the door that says, you know what? Shalom is possible. There is a solution. But I'm not going to share that with you right now. Because sometimes in order to truly understand and celebrate what Jesus did for us, we need to understand how big the problem was. So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes this morning and God, I come to you just soberly and seriously this morning. Lord, when we think about this problem, God, we know that we don't take sin anywhere near as seriously as you do. And so, Lord, I pray even this morning, even at this very moment, God, that you would be working by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, that you would be moving in the hearts of everyone here, whether they're a believer or not a believer, and God, that you would just be impacting them with truth even right now as we speak about this issue. Lord, it's ugly. The diagnosis isn't good. But God, we just want to be honest about it. And even though we're knee-deep in filth and muck and mire, God, we know that you still look upon us and there's a way and there's a solution. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, just continue to move in us as we leave from this place. And we think about him and what he did for us. In your son's name we pray.